KRCL, 90.9 FM, HD1 in Salt Lake City, Ogden, and Provo, 96.7 FM in Park City, on the web at krcl.org. Listener-supported community radio. Support for Radioactive on KRCL comes from our sustaining members and Mark Miller Subaru. Welcome to Radioactive, a show for grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives. I'm Laura Jones, and coming up on the show tonight, celebrating the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, turning 32 this month. We're going to be talking with folks from the Utah Developmental Disabilities Council. Also this hour, AIR, making the invisible visible through contemporary art that explores AIR from environmental, social justice, and cultural perspectives. Again, it opens this weekend, and Saturday actually is their free day. You do have to reserve a ticket, however, my friends. Earlier today, 3rd District Judge Andrew Stone Stone rolled in favor of Planned Parenthood Association of Utah's request for an injunction stopping Utah's trigger ban from taking effect. You know, Roe v. Wade overturned by the Supreme Court of the United States. So that is a win. I want to start off rallies and resources with a bit of what the judge had to say in his ruling. And this was a very key element, I think, of why he decided to let the injunction stay in place as uh, Planned Parenthood's case on the trigger ban proceeds through the courts. And this is 3rd District Judge Andrew Stone. There are lots of different religious and secular views of what constitutes human life. People of faith differ in that view. People within the same faith differ in that view. People without faith differ in those views. This law selects a single view of that question and imposes it on everyone. I think there are serious questions there on the rights of conscience. So there are clearly serious constitutional issues here to be litigated, and the claims are plainly not frivolous. So I will grant the preliminary injunction. And that is 3rd District Judge Andrew Stone making his ruling today, allowing Planned Parenthood to proceed with its case against the trigger ban of here in Utah. And so abortion, again, up to 18 weeks is now available in Utah. Wanted to get Carrie Galloway's reaction. She held a press conference online and had this to offer after the news today. Judge Stone was so amazingly clear in his summary and his announcement of the preliminary injunction. He spoke directly to everyone in Utah, regardless of your political affiliation, regardless of your gender, your sex, your religion. He spoke to everyone has a right to their own decisions. And he was so clear that these issues need to be litigated. These need to hear the breath of fresh air so that the people of Utah understand our constitution, what it means to all of us, and specifically the right to determine your own pregnancy. Carrie Galloway, president and CEO of the Planned Parenthood Association of Utah and Planned Parenthood Action Council of Utah. And I'm sure there will be more to come. Coming up this weekend, or actually this week, they do tech, I believe, tomorrow night, and then they start on the 13th on the boards at Salt Lake Acting Company. 
Cabaret Down the Rabbit Hole. I had a chance to speak with Slack's Joshua, uh, Joshua Black, and also Olivia Custadio, co-writer of this year's team doing Down the Rabbit Hole. And here is our conversation. Joining me now from Salt Lake Acting Company, we have Josh Black. Hey, Josh. Hello, hello. And uh, head writer, Olivia Custadio, formerly from the cast last year. How you doing? Good. Thank you so much for having us. I am so yes. excited to talk to you about this transition. First of all, yes. what made you take that big creative leap? Oh, well, I have been dabbling in writing a few years now. And when the opportunity came up, it just felt very natural. My introduction into the theater community in Salt Lake was through Slack. And it feels right that I make this next big creative leap for myself uh, at Slack. And everybody has just been so supportive. And it just felt like the perfect safe space to create and uh, try something new for myself. So this is the second year, Josh, right? For the this cabaret year. approach? Yeah, second year of Slack Cabaret. Um, all new writing team this year. This year We had an all new writing team last year. Um, that's the idea is to rotate writers through, figure out the magic sauce, but also have a, a pool of talent from which to pull because we are so set on having telling diverse stories and, and diverse perspectives. Um, so we're really excited for that um, versatility that we're going to see year after year in this this, uh, this property. Well, give us a glimpse into what folks can expect with Down the Rabbit Hole, which opens July 13th, runs through August 21st. Picnics are back at Slack. We'll get into all of that. Was there any, you know, here's what you should write about given to you, or were you just free to say what's the quirky, quirky stuff that's happening in Utah? Well, Cynthia gave me a completely blank canvas. She said it didn't even have to be a musical. It could be whatever I want. There didn't even have to be a plot. And uh, I gave that a lot of thought and thought about the things that um, have been on my mind about Utah and the people who live here and decided that the structure I did end up wanting to go with was a, a musical, a two-act musical format. Um, but it is an interesting dive into the world of MLMs and essential oils. Ah, okay, let's read the uh, the little description there that you sent over. When a group of Utahns come together for the annual essential oils convention in downtown, sounds familiar, mm -hmm. they find themselves seeking a cure for their woes in all the wrong places. Where do you take us? Give us a little, little paint, the, paint the landscape for us. Well, we have quite uh, a diverse group of Utahns, I really wanted to capture uh, all the range of people who live here. You know, I think within being a Utah, there are many different things to explore. So we have, you know, the housewife in Provo who maybe doesn't feel like she belongs there anymore. We have BYU students. We have a couple who um, thinks that maybe these oils could help save their marriage. We have, you know, people going through all kinds of different journeys, and I wanted to authentically take a look at the people who live here. I think it's really easy to generalize the kind of people who live here, and I wanted to avoid that and try to tell some truthful stories and show some real journeys. So Slack Cabaret Down the Rabbit Hole, it's your writing debut for Slack? Yeah. I, well, well, I did a digital short yes, during the, COVID time. My times. favorite of the digital <laughs> shorts. We had nine of them, and hers was called... What, if it's Co good enough for Costco. It's good enough for ah. Costco. <laughs> it was an anti-masker who meets God, played by Annette Wright. Oh, so funny. Yeah. Annette Wright. Love Annette Wright. I know. So... 
What are some of the tunes that are in this cabaret? Well, I uh, went pretty modern with some of them. I It was really important to me to actually choose songs that would further the storytelling. So I chose, honestly, all of my own favorite music. But within that, I wanted to be sure to be mindful of what we were picking. Um, so we have some 80s. We have some modern. We have some really dancey music. We have some ballads. I mean, you're going to hear it all. So in the grand tradition of Cabaret and Slack's history of parody, these are going to be tunes we recognize, mm -hmm. but with new lyrics and a treatment about MLM, multi-level marketing, essential oils, and the quirkiness that is Zion. Absolutely. Yep. Right. That's it. Could not have said it better. Yes. All right, Josh, <laughs> where can people get tickets? Uh, when, how long's the run? Are you through tech? Uh, they're almost through tech, but it's in great shape. I'm so excited to see it. Um, it runs July 13th through August 21st. Tickets are available at saltlakeactingcompany.org or by calling the box office at 801-363-7522. And Olivia, I wanted to give you the last word because I know you wanted to do probably some shout outs to folks on your writing team. Yeah, absolutely. I have been working really closely with Emilio Casillas and music director Mike Levitt. Just the power team. It's been the best, and I couldn't have done it without them. The music is fantastic. I, as per usual, Mike just does an incredible job. And I think, you know, if you're on the fence about giving the Slack Cabaret a try, I would urge you to come on out. I think you're going to have an amazing time, and the cast is absolutely phenomenal. Oh, I lied. Josh, you get the last word because picnics are back. Yes, um, they are back. They were uh, not back last year, but we're. I think the summer party officially returns, so people are welcome to pack a hamper of their favorite food and beverage. Uh, we're still checking vaccines. Uh, masks are strongly encouraged when not eating and drinking. But yeah, come come party with us this summer. More details where? SaltLakeActingCompany.org. And that is Josh Black and also Olivia Custadio from Salt Lake Acting Company. Down the rabbit hole, their cabaret starts this week, folks. Check tonight's show notes for a link for tickets. And, uh, and again, picnics are back at Salt Lake Acting Company. I'm Laura Jones, and this is Radioactive. And now we're going to celebrate just about 32 years of the Americans with Disabilities Act and what that means for folks in Utah. I've got several guests joining us on Zoom. We have joining us Taquani Oliver. Hi, Taquani. How are you? I'm Excuse me, McKee. I apologize. Um, well, a lot of people know me as both. Um, I'm in and out of the uh, public eye as a performer, so uh, it sort of depends on which stage and which platform both are correct. Would you introduce yourself to our listeners the way you'd like for this interview? Uh, yeah, um, I'm not big on my last name so much, but I'm Dequani, he, him. Um, sort of been Salt Lake's uh, been around to be helpful, and uh, disability justice is where I've landed. All right, Taquani, thank you so much. Also in the studio, I have Ian Summers, a member of the Utah Developmental Disabilities Council, but I'm guessing you do a lot more, Ian, so tell our listeners a bit about yourself. Sure, so I'm a uh, self-advocate. Uh, like you said, I was appointed by Governor Herbert. Uh, at a previous job, I founded the uh, uh, employee resource group and advocacy group um, at the company Qualtrics, which you know uh, has been bandied around quite a bit here in the state of Utah, <laughs> um, and um, have also just been a self-advocate, have also worked with the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network and been a general troublemaker. A general troublemaker, but good trouble, I, I have no doubt, in Correct. the grand tradition of 
uh, activism. Taquani concurs. And we also have with us Ian Summers, excuse me, Eric Stoker. See, I'm already nervous <laughs> talking about this. Information specialist with Utah Developmental Disabilities Council. Tell our listeners a bit more about you, Eric. Yes, like you mentioned, my name is Eric Stoker, and I'm the Information Specialist for the Utah Developmental Displaced Council, and I'm also a self-advocate, and my pronouns are he and him, and I also have done a lot of advocacy work for people with disabilities across the state of Utah, and it's been really fun. Well, I'm just getting chills because I'm holding this article in my hands about our late friend, disabled rights advocate, Sarah Johnson, Sarah with a P, who passed away uh, earlier this year, and we're dedicating this conversation to Sarah with a P, and I understand that you knew her, Eric. I did. We sat on a couple of numerous boards together, and she was a good friend. All right. And uh, let's let's start with this conversation with a bit of history, which I understand you can help us with, right? Yes, I can. So the history of the Americans with Disabilities Act goes back to July 26, 1990, when President George H.W. Bush signed the Disabilities Act. And at the time before the Americans with Disabilities Act was signed, we had the independent living movement, and also we had the Capitol crawl four months before the Americans with Disabilities Act was signed. And both these movements raised awareness that people with disabilities didn't have the access that other people did have. The independent living movement started with Ed Roberts and Judith Heumann, and they voiced their concerns in Washington, D.C., about where people with disabilities should have a place in the community instead of living in an institution and being able to go to school or be employed. And the Capitol Crawl showed us that all buildings needed to be more accessible for people with disabilities. Over 1,000 people attended the crawl, and the crawl was to push Congress to pass the Americans with Disabilities Act. So picture yourself at the United States Capitol, and you can see that people with disabilities are literally crawling up the steps to voice the congressman to pass the Americans with Disabilities Act. I remember those news stories. I'm sorry to butt in. You no, keep going. No, you're good. So congressman to pass the Americans with Disabilities Act because there was no way to access this building because back in 1990, there were no wheelchair ramps or elevators, and it wasn't required back then. But when the ADA was passed, those things changed. Yeah. Those things changed. So all of you have, to one degree or another, identified yourselves as uh, self-advocates, as well as grassroots activists. I think I'm comfortable saying that. But Taquani, what has the ADA meant in your life? And you're also a performer, so how have you pulled that into that part of your life? Um, as someone who, um, because of, I'm a, I'm a first-generation so-called American, but that word's a real complicated word when uh, this uh, this was a nomadic ancestral homeland for your people. So the concept of borders and even how we frame the conversations around mental health and quote unquote disabilities has <laughs> is, a, is, a, is a loaded question. But for me, it's it's unfortunately meant very little because of the inaccessibility that indigenous and black um, members of the community, especially youth in our schools, um, the barriers they have uh, because their behaviors uh, and trauma responses to not having their needs met are characterized and criminalized uh, rather than treated um, and understood. And so for me, being in the position and the role that um, Sarah uh, chose me to follow in those little little shoes because my feet are much, much bigger. <laughs> <laughs> I wear a size nine and a half uh -huh. um, and I'm only five one. But um, that's that's for, for me is expanding that access and yeah. dusting off the corners and shining light on folks that they may be they may be walls, but they're still flowers nonetheless. Yeah. 
And uh, that's that's my role. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned that you knew Sarah with a P as well. And I, I know, for, for folks that do, didn't know Sarah with a P, how would you describe her to Quan? Uh, Sarah with a P forcefully in this weird sort of, I promise you, because by the time I first met her, I, I was out. I, I, I've been doing activism and my part in, in understanding restorative justice from an indigenous perspective most of my life. Um, I, I, I was a, a corporate uh, a friend sponsor for Target Saving Earth Kids Club. And so conserve, conservation has, has always been something very close to, to my heart. And, and there is sort of this, this thing that Salt Lake can do to you that it can, it can burn you out when the love's not reciprocated. Yeah. And when you don't know that you're disabled, it can wear you out even more. So having access to folks getting a diagnosis is one of the things that's like super important to me in, in the conversations that we have so that folks can finally be able to um, recognize that they have every right to exist in the space that they occupy and be understood. So did you have a late in life diagnosis of a disability, Taquani? Yeah, um, so I call myself ADHD. We always sort of knew that there was this always manic-driven, energetic thing to me because I've been involved in like 17 things all at once, all the time since I was a kid. But I had structures of somewhat parents and school, kind of, that kept me within guardrails. But yeah, I wasn't diagnosed with autism until two and a half, almost three years ago now. Um, even though like now I have the words to describe certain things, there are parents of disabled children in, in the communities that I organize with are sort of telling me what their children struggle with. And I'm like, oh, that's, that's me. That's what you call that. And I'm even taking notes of, of how to describe this because I speak Spanish and, and how to be able to be that sort of conduit to the, uh, immigrant population, the Spanish-speaking Latinx, the queer community, that a lot of those intersections of identities leave a lot of shadows of people that are getting left uh, on the fringes of those yeah. margins. You know, I think that a lot of the time people think of the ADA as the max, and really I think I think we should think of it as the minimum that should be delivered to folks living with disabilities, and I'm kind of curious about your stance on that, Ian. Uh, we were talking before we came on air about some cases and your opinion that we need to update the ADA perhaps because it is 32 years old, but then I don't have a lot of faith in Congress doing anything well right now. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel the same way <clears throat> in terms of I don't think that uh, there are a lot of bad faith actors out there who would like to see ADA gutted. Um, it, I'll just be blunt with that. Um, there was a bill a couple of years ago um, that was in Congress called the ADA Education Reform Act that would have basically removed the ability for citizens to have any kind of legal recourse. Um, and just as a reminder, um, ADA doesn't have any active enforcement from the federal government. It is all citizen driven. So if you see a building, for instance, or a policy or something else that is inaccessible, you have the option of speaking with the business owner, the school, whoever the institution is, uh, contacting the Department of Justice, which, you know, lulls, uh, we'll see how that goes. Or third, you file a lawsuit um, mm. in order to seek redress. And that's what I see in the news more often than anything right. else about folks living with disabilities and their ability to access services. I see stories about businesses who feel maligned because someone bought a lawsuit. 
Right. And oftentimes the lawsuit comes after they had already asked the business, after they had already tried to exhaust other options. And the lawsuit is kind of the last you know, end to it. And there's a common misconception that people get money off of lawsuits with ADA, but it's actually explicitly written in the law that you cannot make money off of it. There is no financial redress you can make off of ADA. And so this Reform Act was really based on, I think, a bad faith misinformation campaign. Um, and in this last um, court cycle, there was uh, Perez v. LACCD, LA Community College District, where blind students had successfully sued LACCD for having course materials and textbooks online that were not accessible to blind students. It should have been very open and shut. LACCD was making the legal theory, though, that uh, it was unintentional discrimination and therefore fell out of ADA purview. Um, even though they had lost at every level, they lost in the Ninth Circuit. Um, they tried to appeal this case before the Supreme Court, um, and it really wasn't until there was pretty intense activist pressure in the state of California for them to withdraw this case because given how the Supreme Court has gone on a rather more expansive view on certain longstanding federal legislation, um, there was real concern that ADA was going to be gutted. Um, and this is only just the tip of the iceberg of you know ways that ADA has been uh, repeatedly attacked and attempted to be undermined. As part of the employee resource group that you talked about earlier and your role in Qualtrics, can you kind of give us a, a perspective on how business sees the ADA or how when employees bring things up to their employers about accommodations, how that goes? I don't need I, you to tell me tales from Qualtrics, oh, but just sure. from the group. Um, so most employees with disabilities will tell you that they are afraid. Uh, they don't want to disclose. Um, technically, ADA makes it illegal to discriminate your employment based on disability, but proving that is extraordinarily difficult to do, right? Businesses can always come up with a zillion other reasons to say why they let you go and leave it at that. Um, so, in fact, when I was unemployed a few years ago, uh, Voc Rehab at the Utah Department of Workforce Services told me explicitly, do not disclose your disability unless you need a specific accommodation. Definitely don't do it during the application process. And so one of the biggest things, honestly, was just, you know, employees feeling comfortable to self-disclose. Most businesses don't really have a great process for how to self-disclose that to your HR, how to do that in a way that's confidential, that protects your privacy with your manager. Um, really basic nuts and bolts kinds of things like that, um, you know, in terms of just even getting people willing to speak up without fear of retribution um, is a really, really difficult thing. Now, some companies are starting to lean into it a little bit more. Um, so you hear about campaigns like Autism at Work, for instance, through SAP, some other tech companies. Um, there's Oticon, which is backed by Richard Branson. Um, but they're still kind of based on this stereotype of like the, uh, you know, of like an autistic savant. Yeah, um, the Rain Man thing. Yeah, exactly. And it, you know, which it still reinforces a lot of harmful stereotypes. And oftentimes they get surprised when it's like, hey, a person manager uh, is actually coming out as on the spectrum. And that doesn't really fit a lot of the stereotypes. But this is someone who is neurodivergent or someone with another invisible disability. They could have had fibromyalgia or something else that's not readily uh, seeable. Um, and suddenly a lot of companies realize it's not maybe as easy of a PR campaign as they thought it was. Yeah. And so it's still a constant. And it leaves evolution. out the brown and black that, that like lens of that as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because we can be, there's a lot of black women who are great people managers because of how they've had to navigate certain social, uh, patterns and do that very well. Um, but be, it's not recognized as being autism. 
We're talking about the ADA, which turns 32. I understand there is a big party coming on July 30th at the Salt Lake City Public Library. Anybody able to tell us about that on this panel? If not, I'll just put details in the show notes. I have a few here. Yes, Disability Rights Action Committee. Yeah, um, uh, it's. It, I, I will have to say we have been doing such great work in the absence of, I mean, we have to be honest, Sarah was a powerhouse. Yes. Um, and she would and, have been had her and, band playing, right? And <laughs> saying all the words we can't say on radio. Absolutely. Um, and and I, I really want this to also be an invitation to um, those who have um, their, their invisible disabilities, who are able to sort of stand in solidarity with um, some of us who uh, because of COVID precautions and things like that, um, to be able to hold that space in celebration. Um, because the energy that you give and the energy and the space that you're able to hold in our absence, um, we'll be able to um, sort of enjoy that, that energy from our living rooms or from wherever we're enjoying that space. So, so it'll I do be online. recommend that everyone It'll be both, well, there'll be both aspects of it. Mm -hmm. But at the library, there will be performances um, in person. Um, there's been a great deal of effort that's been um, put into planning. But if you go to uh, the website, we are on Facebook as well as Instagram, uh, you can find out the lineup as well as the times. And there's going to be food trucks because uh, that's very important to a gathering. <laughs> and uh, uh, I will make sure to put all that in the in the show notes to Kwani. We just have a few more minutes to, to extend this conversation to Kwani. And what is it you want folks to know here as the 88th turns 32 and here in Utah, the, the intersections that you're talking about to bring this conversation more into focus and to recognize all the ways um, it permeates our community, Taquani. The thing is, it's about community. It, it's not necessarily about accessibility. It's about inviting us in. And it's so often that these spaces, even the way they're designed in this so-called universal design um, framework, leaves so much to be desired of feeling like we actually belong rather than there's just this cookie cutter that's been established rather than just real priority to our humanity and what it means for us to feel like we, we really belong to society and that society really cares about us in a meaningful way. Yeah. Eric, I, we just barely scratched the surface of the history. What else would you like to add from your role as an information specialist with the Utah Developmental Disabilities Council? So a little bit about my history, a little bit before the ADA. I was like two, I was only two years old at the time when, with the developmental delay, and I didn't know anything about the Americans with Disabilities Act. Yeah. And as I got older and got my diagnosis of autism, I joined different boards that helped people with disabilities, like the Utah Developmental Disabilities Council and the Utah Parent Center Board, to understand more about what the Americans with Disabilities Act had to offer for both self-advocates and parents. I, when I was in school, I was able to attend special ed classes and to also take mainstream classes with my friends. It helped me with employment, and when I first served with the Utah Transit Authority's Committee on Accessible Transportation, I kind of learned about what is happening in the transportation field for people with disabilities and to write input on how Utah Transit Authority should be more accessible to, um, to offer access for people with disabilities. And if we go back in time, before the ADA, people with disabilities couldn't access the bus or trains because public transportation is not accessible. 
But when the 88 was passed, it required all buses and trains to have wheelchair ramps, which is kind of what we've mm-hmm. seen today so far, because there's still a lot of it needs to be done to make Utah and the cross the nation more accessible for people with disabilities. So what do you think needs to happen in Utah? Uh, what kind of change? If you could wave a magic wand, I guess I'm saying, Eric, what, what is the number one or two changes you'd like to see enacted in Utah? So I think for me, there needs to be more enforcement of the Americans with Disabilities Act because the law requires that all public places be accessible, but not all of them are, and that citizens have to report it, and they still might not fix it, like Ian mentioned. My work building is accessible for people, but the only negative is the accessible restrooms are only on the fourth floor, and I think it makes it hard for people with disabilities to access. And then number two is I think we need more doors to have wheelchair accessible buttons because I was on a date with my girlfriend out of Jordan Landing. We were getting ice cream, and I looked, and there was no wheelchair accessible button to open the door, and I'm like, what? Well, and in this era of COVID, everybody wants that same button, ironically. Exactly. Have have you guys seen that? That... Yeah. All right. So, Ian, magic wand time. Yeah. uh, A couple of things. One would be um, just as an immediate fix um, that they, you know, that some companies would finally stop screwing around. Um, That the Ubers and Lyfts and Airbnbs of the world. They're exempted because they're tech companies. Because they call themselves tech companies. And so they don't have to follow the same rules that normal taxi companies and hotel chains do, even as they drive those very companies out of business. And that therefore reduces the accessibility. Um, That is something that shouldn't have to require federal intervention. It's something that badly needs to be updated. It's something Utah legislators could take care of if they really wanted to, um, because it's just about a class reclassification. Um, They don't want to because when other cities and states have had this fight, Uber at all will pour tens of millions of dollars into campaigning against it. They have the money to campaign against it instead of spending the money to do what's right. Exactly. Right. They, you know, Uber will spend, you know, whatever it was, $40 million to fight, you know, uh, a designation in the state of California rather than ensure that a certain percentage of their fleet is actually wheelchair accessible Um, and that they have drivers who are, you know, uh, competent and able to handle um, passengers in wheelchairs. The other thing I would say, too, is that in order to understand the future of ADA would be to look at our past. Um, Disability history is uh, shamefully not taught in public schools. I had to learn all of this outside of public education. Um, The history of the activism that it took, the Capitol crawl that Eric alluded to, um, the Section 504 sit-in in the late 1970s, which almost never gets brought up, um, which was the longest federal occupation of a federal building in U.S. history. Um, There was a lot of really long struggle and strife, and the life prior to ADA uh, was not very good. And we do not talk about that in U.S. or Utah history textbooks. Um, And it's something I think is really sorely missing and as a really critical tapestry to American history we need to know more about. Well, Ian, thank you so much. And Eric and Taquani, we're going to give you the last word if you could wave a magic wand. I have to second what Ian is saying, and not just the history of it, but a recognition that quite a lot of the rights that we as Americans enjoy are very much directly as a result of the blood and the violence that's spilled by Black and Indigenous disabled bodies. Well, Taquani, thank you so much for giving us some time as well. And the DRAC party is on July 30th. Absolutely. Check tonight's show notes for more details, folks. When we come back, we're going to be talking about air with the Utah Museum of Fine Arts to get us from here to there. A little something for all you grassroots activists. A little T-Rex, Children of the Revolution on KRCL.
The annual food truck face-off happens Saturday, July 16th, 4 to 10 p.m. at Liberty Park in Salt Lake City. The event benefits 4th Street Clinic, Utah Community Action, and the Children's Center Utah. Three nonprofits serving Utah's most vulnerable. Details at foodtruckfaceoffslc.org. Support for KRCL comes from Mark Miller Subaru, a community partner of YWCA Utah and the Stand Against Racism Challenge. Mark Miller Subaru loves diversity. Learn more at ywcautah.org and markmillersubaru.com. The KRCL quails are back and better than ever. For a limited time only, you can get one of KRCL's most beloved bumper stickers on a t-shirt. Donate today at krcl.org and get yours before they fly off the shelves. Welcome back to Radioactive on KRCL 90.9. I'm Laura Jones. Coming up at 7 o'clock, Democracy Now! Followed by Red, White, and Blues with Brian Kelm at 8. Night Train with Michelle at 10.30. And then John Florence starting your brand new day each and every weekday at 6 a.m. Questions, comments, suggestions, you can email radioactive at krcl.org. I'm always looking for a good story to bring on the show. Uh, Some grassroots activists, some good troublemakers. Uh, pass the mic to, and if that's you or someone you know, please email me. Give me some contact info, a little context, and, and away we go. All right, tomorrow night on the show, we're going to get a preview of Black, Bold, and Brilliant. We're going to talk about roller skating rinks and their importance in African-American communities. Utah Film Center is showing uh, a free screening of United Skates this Friday at Liberty Park. Plus, we'll talk water checkers and a couple other things as well. And then Wednesday, it is the start of our summer drive. And as you just heard, we have that new special edition, limited edition T-shirt to uh, put on you. And we'd love to see you out and about it it this summer. It's the quails, that bumper sticker, beautiful colors, a blue T-shirt. You can check it out online and pick one up now while supplies last at krcl.org. All right, starting this weekend and running through December 11th at the Utah Museum of Fine Arts, it's AIR, making the invisible visible through contemporary art that explores AIR from environmental, social justice, and cultural perspectives. I've got three folks in the studio to share their bit of this new exhibit, including two of the artists I've got joining me in the studio, Salt Lake City-based artist Virginia Catherall. Hi, how are you? Fine, thank you for having me. Absolutely. And we also have Salt Lake City-based artist Elizabeth Bunker. Hello. Hello. So glad you're here. We're going to hear about your mediums and some of your pieces that are in this. But we're going to start with Whitney Tassie, the Utah Museum of Fine Arts Modern and Contemporary Curator. And I understand this was more than just an exhibit. The museum also is exploring its own role in this. So let's start at the beginning. What is AIR and uh, how has it come to fruition, Whitney? Uh, good question. Over many years and lots of labor and uh, the, it started, gosh, when I became a Utahan about 10 years ago and I moved here and I had never heard of inversion. Oh, that chunky, soupy air. Yeah, and I was like, whatever, whatever, Every, air pollution. We all have a little bit of air pollution. And then I was like, oh, wow, this is a thing. This is like <laughs> a real thing. And I had babies and I had to wear crazy masks when oh. I was pregnant and um, really, it was affecting you that much? Well, I just I was reading the studies. The University of Utah puts out amazing research about air quality. And, you know, you're first-time mom, and you want to you care about your, your baby. And yep. so I dug into this research, and I started looking at other artists who were also concerned and talking about this, like 
as artists usually do, yeah. they're responding to issues that are relevant in your community. So this this checklist for this exhibition has building has been building for a really long time, mm -hmm. um, starting to do you know, around the like issues we have here on the Wasatch Front. Yeah. So uh, there's 16 artists yep. from around the world, yeah. and there's 16 youth artists. Yes. Uh, tell us the breadth and scope of who's participating, Whitney. It's a big it's a big exhibition, right? So so as you mentioned, yep, artists from all over the world, and then 16 um, artists who were high school students in 2020. Um, now they have moved on, I, many of them, I believe. Um, and then there's artwork made by the community. As, as we have been preparing for this exhibition, we've been doing workshops and talking about air justice and issues that are important to our community. And some of that artwork has made its way into the exhibition as well. So it's fiber art and video art and painting and photography and installation and sculpture. It really runs the gamut. Wow, it's huge. It opens on Saturday, yep. and it's the annual free day at the mm -hmm. museum. But you do need to sign up for tickets. you got to RSVP them, I do believe. Uh, I don't think so. Oh, okay. Well, then you heard it here from Whitney. <laughs> <laughs> Come on down. I think we encourage reservations, yeah. but it's not required. <laughs> so anyway, folks, I'll put a link in the show notes. But uh, let's dig into uh, some of the art. So let's start with you, Virginia. Tell us your medium. Tell us a bit about yourself as an artist. And then take us into kind of exploring this theme of air. Virginia um, well thank you so I am a textile artist and my medium is mostly knitting so I do knitted wearable art is really kind of the my my genre and um, I focus on landscape I do a lot of knitted landscapes that you can wrap the landscape around you and submerge yourself in it um, that's something that's very important to me I I work with a lot of uh, uh, national parks. I've been artist in residence for national parks around the area over the last several years, and and this idea of being um, aware of the landscape and uh, understanding nature is really important to um, be able to become a steward of the landscape. If you don't, if you don't submerge yourself in it, sometimes it's harder to be a steward. And so that's kind of where I started from, um, and then. The um, the artwork that I did for the that is in the show is called an air quality scarf, and that is a that was actually inspired by the exhibition air that was supposed to be well the, at the beginning we were thinking of having it in in 2020, 2020. <laughs> right? Which of course then the pandemic changed everything. Um, so in 2020, I um, I knew this exhibit was coming and I was interested in this idea of air quality as part of as one of the themes of it. And um, I had done daily practices in my art before. And so this is something that I wanted to record the air quality in my neighborhood every day for a year and turn that into a scarf. So one stripe of a scarf is what that day's air quality was based on the um, scale of you know red, green, yellow. Well, it starts. It's green, then yellow, then red, then orange. Then all purple. those colors yeah. we love to <laughs> to do for all sorts of things. Right, and so right. I'll bet it's a riot of color. It really is. It's kind of this garish riot of color. But the the unusual thing is that um, when I started it, of course, I started it in January, not knowing what was in the future. Um, and it was, you know, you could see the inversion in the first month or two. And then March came and everybody stopped driving. And I had months of just green, mm. green, 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 green. I remember that when uh, it seemed like, oh, we really could do this. Yeah. We really could radically change our behavior and see the effect. And you can see it in your scarf. Yeah. I'm mindful of another knitter who knitted a scarf during 
community meetings like a, I think it was actually over in the UK somewhere and it was two different colors and it was she would knit as long as the different folks and their gender would reflect oh, their I've gender seen that. and and uh, it was such a striking visual I can't wait to see your piece is it as long as a Doctor Who scarf it <laughs> almost is it's pretty long because you know 365 actually yeah. 366 in 2020 wasn't it um stripes and so it is pretty long and and there what's nice the way that that Whitney is displaying it is she is using it as it it's a data set and a timeline so you can see it as a data set and a timeline and it it fulfills that that idea of of really understanding your environment and putting it into a textile art and then there's a timeline on it so there's going to be um uh, labels that say, you know, this is when the pandemic started, and this is when the earthquake happened, and this is when the wildfires were making the air terrible. And mean, meanwhile, you can navigate the quality of the air by the color code. Yeah. Wow, that's fantastic. Yeah. All right, I can't wait to see that when it's on my uh, list of things to look for <laughs> at the exhibit when it opens this weekend at the Utah Museum of Fine Arts. And that was Salt Lake City-based artist Virginia Catherall. Don't go anywhere. Need to hear some <laughs> more from you. Let's go move over to Salt Lake City-based artist Elizabeth Bunker. Tell us about your medium and exploring this theme and uh, what your piece is. Yes, so I'm a painter, a pretty traditional, um, I like prefer water media and collage on canvas and panel and I've long done landscape um I'm from here I grew up in Ogden and went to school in Colorado and would come back and visit and coming back into Utah and kind of revisiting the landscape even though it's it's not the same as Colorado Colorado has its own unique yeah, footprint but when for you sure. drop back into that bowl and it's a bad air day <laughs> well this was a long time ago yeah. this was like 15 years ago um so we weren't quite dealing with the a series of, of the inversion that we were dealing with then but it was just a way for me to kind of come home and really connect with Utah because I hadn't really connected with Utah as much as a youth growing up in Ogden I connected much more with folks in Colorado and that kind of felt more like home. But then coming back, it was this really strong familiarity and connection that I was able to kind of bridge some pain from the past. And um, yeah, so I focused a lot on Great Salt Lake and Spiral Jetty and just these really iconic, beautiful parts of Utah that I really loved. And I do really big scale, expressive landscapes. Okay, what are we talking? Give us some size. <laughs> I got to paint a picture for radio. The piece that's hanging at UMFA for this exhibit is four feet by four feet. So 48 inches by 48 inches. So it's large. Um, and that's pretty much, <laughs> I try to work as large as I possibly can. I also do murals, um, but you know, size limitations and all that. So yeah, I always loved to make these big, drippy, expressive, really colorful, kind of like emotive landscapes. That was kind of my vibe and what I really loved to create. So I moved back to Utah and, you know, kind of made a life here after um, getting my BFA in Colorado and continued making and creating landscapes and then really started to become more cognizant of the inversion. I'm not sure if it was about 10 years ago. It sounds around the same time that Whitney <laughs> came back. And really started to just notice the feel and the depth and the impact of the inversion. And it started to become more and more discussed and more and more of a concern brought up. And even if it wasn't being discussed, it's just absolutely tangible. You cannot escape it. I would, you know, you leave your house in the morning, especially, you know, pre-pandemic when we were, you know, <laughs> in a flurry of activity every day, constantly in movement, um, it was just so 
ominous. You couldn't even see 20 feet to the house across the street from you. Um, so it just was very impactful. And I don't know, it just it was kind of a natural progression of creating landscapes that were taken, uh, photos that were taken on those really bad inversion days. So I always try to work off of my own photographs. I'm no photographer per se, but I really, it's really important to me to have that connection with um, the space and the landscape and like what I'm seeing. So I just would go on walks and take photographs of just different areas around my neighborhood. Um, I lived in Fair Park at the time, proud West Side resident since I moved back to Salt Lake. I'm in Glendale now. And um, yeah, just snapped a picture of the refineries. And even though it's the output is steam, the inversion was so bad that day and it was a cold day. It was on January 11th, 2019. And it just was such a dramatic scene. And the way the that the billowing, light, oh, smoke, the billowing, so- yeah. And just the way that the, the inversion does something really um, unique to the air. It really kind of creates these, this depth within the air and just got a, yeah, a really good photograph. So I try not to drive around too much on any inversion days to snap <laughs> different yeah, photos. I, I know what you mean, though, because I, for 30 years, lived with, literally, even with my arm, a stone's throw from the refineries. Yeah. And I always felt it had, like, a noir feel to it, like, a menacing quality. I mean, I always kind of loved the refineries. Like, who doesn't love to sit on garage's patio and in, <laughs> and just hang out down there? And But, yeah, it was the train tracks and the little graffiti. And so it was just a really cool image. Um, and then... The huge challenge for me was to take my palette, which sounds like it's the palette Virginia was able to work with in kind of, you know, (laughs) us opposite way, um, which was very bright, expressive, totally saturated, like, you know, very, yeah, emotive, and to try and dull it down. And all the different processes of experimenting to try and figure out, should I do overlays should I do lots of layers of really thin washes of grays or just should I start with the bright colorful palette I normally use and then subdue that or just kind of figure out those layers was really challenging from a process lens that I absolutely just loved even though it was very dreary and depressing task (laughs) so we're at four feet by four feet you got to look for this one as well Elizabeth Bunker's piece in air which opens July 16th and runs through December 11th at the Utah Museum of Fine Arts. Whitney, these are just two of the pieces. Can you tell us a little bit more about what folks can expect? Sure. Um, Well, Virginia already mentioned that the show was originally slated to open in 2020, um, and I'm I'm really glad that it didn't, that we had an opportunity to think about the checklist a bit more, um, because I don't know about you, but my world changed in 2020 for, for many, many reasons, and as I was thinking about air, and how we share it intimately, how our bodies share it, how the planet shares it, how we share it with each other. You know, we're breathing through masks and making that really literal. Um, and then I was thinking about, you know, who who gets access to clean air? Who gets access to air at all? And we've got, um, you know, racial um, justice protests where mm-hmm. people are chanting, I can't breathe. And, um, you know, thinking about the, the sort of environmental racism um, that means that people in Salt Lake uh, from marginalized communities or historically underrepresented communities have a bigger or impacted more deeply by air pollution and other things like these things were really becoming apparent and so it was a really wonderful moment to have another year to build this checklist to to really flesh out our relationship with air and how it connects um, us to each other and to the planet. 
So we're talking artists, poets, engineers, yep. and designers. Mm -hmm. So a lot of stuff going on in this exhibit. Yeah, yeah. poetry and um, cool inventions. And yeah, it's, it really does run, run the gamut. All, all the artists are, are helping us see something that we don't usually see, right? Air is this invisible resource that we all rely on. But if we can, we can be more aware of it, of our impact on it, um, and how we need it together to share, um, we're hoping to inspire change. We're hoping to make, you know, together to be more aware of, of our impact. You've also thought broadly about the artists you've invited mm -hmm. to create pieces or whose work you've brought into it as well. Yeah, yeah, it's a really diverse group of artists um, from India and China and the UK and Sierra Leone and uh, the Navajo Nation and the Chimwevi nation and they're yeah it's really a, a diverse perspective which really underscores you know hey <laughs> this is all the air that we got this is it we're all breathing it yeah all right so uh coming up this weekend is this weekend the third saturday as well it so is. there's okay so what can people do besides see the exhibit there's hands-on activities that's right there's art making every third saturday is free at the museum and we always have art making from one to four so the museum is free on opening day for this exhibition because it's a third Saturday and we invite you to come and make some art. The activity is clean air poster making. Uh, so I'm excited for that. Come on down. And there's lots more to come, mm -hmm. I understand. Um, what is it you want folks to walk away from this and not the least of which being the museum? Aren't you exploring air and what the museum as an institution contributes to the issue or can change about its own processes? Yes, absolutely. Um, it felt really important in planning this exhibition to be really cognizant of our own uh, impact on the environment, our own footprint. So we did things as a staff, like we all participated in the Clear the Air Challenge, and we, every department started researching, like, you know, graphic design was interested in what inks are we printing with, or um, our registrar looked into shipping, like maybe we don't have to do a bunch of air shipping, like maybe it's, you know, less CO2 emissions if you go ground and you go slow. And so, so we spent this time being really thoughtful about, um, about exhibition making and how wasteful it can be. So I think one of the great outcomes of this exhibition, at least personally for me, is that I think the UMFA learned a lot and that we'll take a lot of these lessons forward in the exhibition planning, um, you know, when it, even when it doesn't have anything to do about air or climate change or carbon emissions. So considering uh, the institution and the people within it part of the solution. Absolutely. And folks, you can take public transit up to the That's museum. Right. Please come take the tracks. Yeah, you can get all the way up there. And we'll put a link in the show notes. Show notes. You mentioned the Clear the Air Challenge. It's mm -hmm. going on again. That's right. It's right now, now in July. Yeah. It used to be in February. Yeah. By the wildfires. Oh. And then, of course, we have ozone during the summer mm -hmm. that creates another another health aspect. So some ideas could be had uh, on how you can get involved in this issue, folks, and maybe things that you could do to be part of the solution by going to the exhibit. Whitney. That's right. Yeah, we have lots of ideas for how to get involved and how to make change. And yeah. All right. Well, I want to go back to our artists, Elizabeth and Virginia, and just talk about what this experience left you with thinking about. Uh, I mean, like all of you have said to one degree or another, it's been on your mind. It's everything that we breathe. We know it. you can't avoid this issue. But after this scarf and um, that is a practice, do you see yourself applying this sort of, um, I don't know, artistic methodology to other issues? Um, yeah, it, this uh, this process of making this scarf, this daily practice of 
of really understanding the environment day by day, um, but it had made a big impact on me. Um, so wanting to do it more. But the reason, part of the reason of wanting to do it more is this idea of capturing data, you know, data about your environment. Um, I've been thinking about maybe I can make something of um, how many bees I see every day mm. because bees Ooh. are starting to decline yeah. and, and maybe, you know, seeing a data set in some kind of wearable thing where that will remind me every day about maybe bees or maybe the levels of Great Salt Lake. I was just going to say, we need to drag all of you into the Great Salt Lake Collaborative to help shine a light on that issue. Exactly, exactly. And so so anything like that that really kind of elevates your idea and elevates your awareness of what's happening day by day. Um, is what this what I brought out of this, and I think other people can also do that as well. You well, don't have to make a scarf; you can just record it on a piece of paper. Exactly, but art as a, an avenue into the conversation. Right. What do you think about that, Elizabeth? I think for me, previous pieces about landscapes were much more personal and much more about my experience, and now doing this series and thinking more broadly about the issues that are causing, you know. <laughs> this series to even exist has definitely made me much more interested in creating work that thinks about other environmental issues or other things that are impacting um, all of us as a collective, not just me as an individual kind of thinking about that connection. Did you think of yourself as perhaps a social commentator before this piece, this exhibit? Um, I would say in other avenues, I was an educator for 10 years, so I definitely you know, was um, thinking about educational justice in my practice as a teacher. I taught art, um, but not necessarily in my own artistic practice. So this has definitely been very, yeah, broadening for me and very fascinating. And so we I can expect important. some more four by fours <laughs> coming from I'll you. I'll try and go bigger. Why not? <laughs> Let's go wild. Are you hearing this from the other artists as well, Whitney? I mean, I'm, I'm sh- having not having yet to see it. Right. Um, uh, I'm guessing this may have been a new uh, way to practice one's art for many of them. For some of them, for some of them, they've been making work about about air, air and um, you know exposure for a long time. Uh, there are a few artists in the exhibition who have been making work about uranium um, on the Navajo Nation, and that gets in the air and has been a multi-generational um, devastation uh, for their nation and their people. So, so yeah, it's a mix. It's a mix of artists who um, have, have different goals. So, Well, tell me a bit more about the students that you brought into this as well. Oh, that's a great project. So there's a project out of USU called the Clean Air... Poster, poster marketing contest. <laughs> it's a long poster name. I'm contest. sorry, Ed. Um, but he, this is a contest where um, uh, high schoolers all over the state of Utah are invited to make sort of PSAs um, in their art class about um, emissions. So they're think about it. They're learning how to drive. They need to be told, don't idle. What about trip chaining? Like all of these behaviors that you should know to be a responsible driver. Um, so, so this um, program teaches students and then they have to make these posters and then there's this competition statewide and they select like 16 winners every year and so we have the winners from the statewide competition from 2020 and they're phenomenal 
They're so good. They're 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 really wonderful. And that is the inspiration for this Saturday's That's art right. making, right? That's right? So see Absolutely. we bring it full circle. So tell us the who, what, when, where, and why, the logistics, the the uh, mass transit to get to the exhibit and all of the good stuff. All right, Whitney. I'll try. You, can, you all can help me. Um, please take tracks or ride your bike or walk or carpool. Um, or trip chain, your little hiney to the UMFA. <laughs> um, this Saturday, um, it's free all day, um, 10 to 5. And uh, we have art making, third Saturday art making, clean air posters um, from 1 to 4. So uh, tickets are encouraged but not required. Ah, see, there we go. Yeah. See, they are encouraged. Yep. Just to plan your day. And there is a great cafe up there. So you can spend your day. That's true. And get a little something to eat. That's and right. uh, see a lot, do a lot, learn a lot. Well, thank you so much. I want to get websites. UMFA? Mm-hmm. UMFA.utah.edu. Elizabeth Bunker? Elizabeth, www.elizabethbunker.com. And Virginia Catherall. LakeSaltKnit.com. Lake Salt Knit. See, you're already going to be part of the Great Salt Lake Collaborative. I can tell. <laughs> All of you, we're going to pull you into that conversation thank you so much for being here great conversation i appreciate it check tonight's show notes folks for details on how you can go see air on view july 16th through december 11th at the utah museum of fine arts as well as the birthday party for the american with disabilities act that the disability rights action council committee is doing but we'll also hook you up with the utah developmental disabilities council that we mentioned earlier in the show and also have a link for you to slack cabaret down the rabbit hole I'm Laura Jones. My thank you to you for listening, for supporting Listeners Community Radio of Utah. We don't go without you, so please go visit us online at krcl.org. Check out the new Summer Drive t-shirt. They're beautiful, beautiful blue. Great quail design. We'd love to have you join us this summer. Again, thanks for listening. I'm Laura Jones. Democracy Now! is next. KRCL, Salt Lake City. Support for KRCL comes from our listeners and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.